0: An ongoing legal case, Braidwood Management Inc. v. Becerra, challenges provisions in the Affordable Care Act that rely on recommendations from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force as a basis for mandating insurance coverage for preventive care. The case could have important implications for access to essential insurance benefits, as well as for the federal government's future presence in the health policy landscape. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Michelle Mello a professor of law and of health policy at Stanford University. Professor Mello has co-authored a perspective article about the Braidwood case. Professor Mello, could you start by explaining how the ACA relies on the USPSTF and other groups to ensure that health plans cover certain services?
1: Sure. One of the interesting moves that Congress made in the ACA was to delegate to expert bodies decision-making about preventive care services that ought to be covered with zero copay for patients. And specifically relevant for this case, said that any service that the task force reviews and gives an A or B grade to, meaning there's a very good level of evidence supporting a recommendation that patients should receive this service at the designated times, any service that gets that rating has to be covered by private health plans that are subject to ACA regulation, again, at no copay cost to the patient.
0: So who are the plaintiffs in the Braidwood case, and why do they object to those provisions?
1: The plaintiffs here were a constellation of individual insurance purchasers and employers. Both groups were making two kinds of claims. First, they objected on religious grounds to having to pay for services to which they had a moral and religious objection. And secondly, They simply expressed a preference for cheaper insurance, said, look, we're not going to use these services that were at issue in the case, which specifically are PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV, HPV vaccines, contraceptives, screening and counseling for sexually transmitted infections and substance use. We're not going to use these services, so why should we have to pay for them? We'd rather buy insurance that carves that out.
0: And then the case was heard by Judge Reed O'Connor in Texas. Could you explain his decision? and? the reasoning behind it?
1: Judge O'Connor, he's a federal district court judge. That means he's a trial court judge. And he's subject to appellate review, of course, by both the intermediate courts of appeals and the U.S. Supreme Court. But he has had a lot of experience adjudicating Affordable Care Act cases in Texas. He's become famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, for being sympathetic to challengers of the ACA. And in this case, the plaintiffs organized to bring these challenges to the ACA's coverage mandate, arguing that they violated a number of fairly obscure constitutional provisions, but most notably because it formed the basis for his decision, that it violated something called the Appointments Clause, which frankly, I hadn't really heard or thought about since finishing law school over 20 years ago but which says that when so-called principal officers of the United States government are going to be put into office, they have to be nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Of course, we all understand that process. We see it going on for hiring officers like the U.S. Supreme Court justices and the Secretary of Health and Human Services. But it was an unusual move to suggest that that appointments clause applied to these volunteer academic experts serving on a health committee
0: so you write in your perspective article that the court postponed determining what remedies the plaintiffs would receive until after the parties had filed additional briefs so what are the various options in front of them
1: they're beginning to come into focus now because those briefs have started arriving at the court we now have two batches of them in, and there will be one more But there's essentially three options on the table. And if you're an advocate of public health and access to insurance coverage, none of them are awesome. The first is that what the plaintiff would like to do is just to stop the government entirely from enforcing these coverage mandates, period. Just cannot be enforceable. And the rest of the ACA presumably would still stand, but that would be out. The second remedy would be for the government to say, okay, okay, look, we will fix the way these task force members are appointed so that it no longer violates the appointments clause. And the way that we will do that is to say that their decisions are gonna be ratified by the secretary of health and human services. One of the problems legally here is that this committee has a great deal of power, including the power to make recommendations that are binding for health plans under the law, the ACA, and also are not appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. So. One way to fix that is to say, their recommendations are not binding, they're going to be advisory to a political appointee like the Secretary of Health and Human Services. And then the third option is to say, okay, okay, we will fix it in a slightly different way. We will say that this task force, we're not gonna change the way that they're appointed anymore, but their recommendations will no longer be independent. They can't make binding recommendations in an independent way they will be subject to a greater degree of political control. So we will jettison the part of the ACA that says that the task force shall be independent and to the extent practicable, not subject to political pressure.
0: So what comes next for Braidwood? Do you expect higher courts are going to hear the case?
1: When Ann Joseph O'Connell, who is one of the nation's leading scholars of administrative law, and I looked at this issue, I think we both felt that there is some vulnerability of this holding to appeal, And it certainly wouldn't be the first time that Judge O'Connor has been reversed in his holdings on the Affordable Care Act. He, as you may know, was one of the judges who said the entire Affordable Care Act was unconstitutional and void. And that, of course, was not at all. The part that seems a little odd to us is the holding that these task force volunteers qualify as principal officers. And that, as such, their recommendations can't be both binding and independent. And the reason it seems odd is not only that they look really different from everybody else, that courts have agreed are principal officers of the United States and that we are used to seeing undergo Senate confirmation hearings. Again, these are unpaid, independent, volunteer experts who don't work for the government and serve for a limited period of time but also that there are other private standard-setting organizations whose determinations Congress uses in binding government regulations. For example, the American Society of Mechanical Engineers sets standards for that field of engineering, and they are used in making all kinds of regulations related to engineering, and that has never been an issue before. So the court would need to find that there is something different about what this private body does in setting standards for insurance coverage versus what a society like the mechanical engineers does for engineering
0: regulations. And then finally, given these trends, what may be trends in judicial decision-making, what types of policies could the federal government pursue to protect health and access to healthcare services in the future? What options does the government have were this ruling to stand?
1: Well, the options really are limited to the remedies that I've named, which is essentially that you say, okay, if we want to keep this coverage mandate, we have to sacrifice either the binding nature of the task force's recommendations or the independent nature. And those aren't great options. There are, of course, very good reasons why we might want to delegate some quite important health policy decisions to a body that's not subject to being buffeted by political pressure. But that would be the way to keep the coverage mandate in place is to say that their independent recommendations are not going to be binding. If Congress wanted to find a way around that, really the only thing that Judge O'Connor's opinion leaves open for them is to make these folks undergo Senate confirmation hearings, which is just frankly inconceivable. It's not super easy to find highly distinguished academic scientists who are willing to donate 250 hours of service a year to this committee. And that's without being hauled before a Senate confirmation panel. So that seems like a really difficult thing for them to do. Of course, Congress can make decisions about what has to be covered under the ACA directly. It doesn't have to delegate it to any administrative body, much less one that is not even nested fully within the Department of Health and Human Services. But those of us who watch Congress should feel a little bit of pause about relying on that body to take action on anything, really, to be able to get consensus around anything, much less these sort of granular determinations that have to be made quite often as things change, and that has no special expertise in evaluating the clinical effectiveness and cost effectiveness of preventive care services. The other thing that I just want to mention is that the other part of this ruling relating to religion is of equal or greater concern, I think, than the part about the task force directly, because that part of the opinion said, look, the way the Supreme Court has been interpreting the scope of religious liberty over the last few years is such that if a health plan or an individual health insurance purchaser comes forward and says to us, Look, we sincerely believe that this particular service is posing a substantial burden on our religious belief, our religious practice, that sincere belief, even if it's crazy, has to be respected. And so that really leaves the door open without much recourse by Congress or any other part of the government, because this is a fundamental constitutional right that people now have, Leaves the door open for all kinds of people to come out of the woodwork and say, yes, I actually have a religious objection to this. I have a religious objection to that. And the key part of the ruling is it does not have to make any sense. For example, you can be a Catholic and claim that receiving a COVID vaccine or having to pay for a COVID vaccine is against your religious doctrine, even if the Pope says, no, don't worry about it. It's fine with me, as the Pope has. So this really has a very wide berth now for religious liberty claims to disrupt not just this narrow band of services under the ACA, but a huge swath of services that implicate sexuality, gender, same-sex couples, unmarried adolescents, unmarried women seeking reproductive and sexual health care, and a variety of other things. So I think that part of the ruling is perhaps even more troubling and farther reaching and not something that Congress can really do anything about.
0: Thank you, Professor Mello, and we'll come back to you when this case reaches an appeals court, which I expect it will.